0: Welcome to Radar Contact, the audio show that teaches pilots how to speak professionally and with confidence to air traffic control. And now, here's your host, airline pilot, author, and host of ATCCommunication.com, Jeff Canarish. Hey, it's me. I'm back. I've been gone a while. Here's what I did over my summer vacation. I downgraded from the 767-400 to the 767-300ER and the 757. Don't ask why. I had some good reasons for doing it, but I'd rather not get into it right now. I also transferred my home base from one city to another. And, oh yeah, I wrote another book. I'll tell you more about that later in the show. The important point is, I'm back from a busy summer and ready to resume my official duties as your guide to all things related to air traffic control and ATC communication. So, without further ado, let's get to it you are flying around the pattern at an uncontrolled airport. Naturally, you're expected to make position reports, which the Aeronautical Information Manual calls self-announced procedures. If you look in the AIM, it tells you to report your position when inbound and 10 miles from the airport. Then, what happens once you're in the pattern? Well, it depends on where you look in the AIM. If you look in Chapter 4 on Table 4-1-1, And I'm just going to say it, I hate this table and the section in which it sits for a lot of reasons, which you'll hear about in the next few minutes. Anyways, if you look at Table 4-1-1, you'll see the AIM says to report your position entering downwind, entering base leg, and entering final. Notice in the table the repetition of the word entering. Okay, now let's get to the text for Section 4 Dash 1 9, which is titled Traffic Advisory Practices at Airports Without Operating Control Towers. Here, under paragraph H, which is Unicom Procedures, item E, the AIM says to quote, report on downwind, base, and final approach. Got that? The table says report entering. The text says report on. See why I hate that table and section? Well, what to do, what to do, what to do. Here's what I recommend. This is technique only. I recommend reporting your position as you enter the next leg of the traffic pattern. In other words, I'm siding with the table in Chapter 4 as poorly constructed as it is, and here's why I advocate for making a report as you enter the next leg of the pattern as opposed to already being established on that leg. When you enter a turn, you create a wing flash. Wing flash happens when the top of your aircraft wings reflect sunlight towards an observer. It would be similar to using a rescue mirror to reflect sunlight and draw the attention of your would-be rescuer in a survival situation. Your wings flashing sunlight, or at least the brighter light coming through a cloud layer, will draw the attention of other pilots in the traffic pattern. A secondary But equally important effect of wing flash is the apparent changing silhouette of your airplane as you bank to enter a turn. To understand what I mean by this, think about looking at an airplane flying straight and level on a path that is perpendicular to you. What do you see? You see the narrow profile of the fuselage. Now imagine the airplane enters a turn away from you. In this case, the underside of its wings to you as it turns. There would be no flash of sunlight off the wings as the airplane banks because the undersides of the wings are in shadow. No matter, you'll still see more of the airplane silhouette because now you are looking at more of the wing's surface area as the plane banks. What all this adds up to is unless you're looking at an airplane directly head on or tail on, the airplane silhouette will always appear bigger and therefore more noticeable to your eye when it's in a bank. Naturally, the motion of an airplane changing bank angle is also more attention-grabbing than an airplane that is flying straight and level. To give you an idea of how significant all this can be, when I flew the A-10 during low-level missions, I always made my turns using very shallow bank angles. Even though the A-10 has a dull gray or green camouflage paint scheme, depending on which one you're flying, and did not reflect sunlight very well, I still used a very shallow bank angle to hide as much of my airplane's profile from enemy gunners as possible. I certainly didn't want to highlight my presence to the enemy by creating a giant wing flash in a turn. Now, let's get back to flying in an uncontrolled pattern. The last thing you want to do in this circumstance is hide. For safety's sake. You want everyone to know you are there. That's why I'm recommending making your position report as you enter a turn. Your position report, combined with the wing flash as you turn from one leg of a traffic pattern to the next, gives other pilots the best chance of spotting you. Now, here's what to say on the radio. There are some examples in the AIM which, again, support making your radio call as you enter each leg of the pattern. Here they are. And I'm going to break them down by location in the pattern. Frederick Traffic Cessna 801 Tango Foxtrot entering downwind for runway 19er, touch and go Frederick. Frederick Traffic Cessna 801 Tango Foxtrot entering base for runway 19er, touch and go Frederick. Frederick Traffic Cessna 801 Tango Foxtrot entering final for runway 19er, touch and go Frederick. I have one more suggestion, and again this is purely technique, not procedure. Think about an airplane that is established in the traffic pattern for touch and goes. When the pilot turns from crosswind to downwind, then says, entering downwind, on the radio, where would you look for him in the pattern? If you're like me, you're going to look for him in the far corner of the traffic pattern where the crosswind leg ends and the downwind leg begins. Now, think about where an airplane joining the downwind leg from outside the traffic pattern will generally enter downwind. If that pilot is like most, he will join downwind at a point about a beam the midpoint of the runway, otherwise known as midfield. For this reason, when entering the traffic pattern at midfield downwind, I, personally, would change my downwind radio call to sound like this. Frederick Traffic, Cessna 801 Tango Foxtrot entering a midfield downwind, Runway 1-8, Touch and Go, Frederick. My reasoning is I want other pilots to look for me at midfield, not at the point where crosswind intersects downwind. As before, I would make that radio call as I'm rolling my aircraft into a turn to join downwind at midfield. That's how I interpret the information in Chapter 4 of the AIM regarding position reports in an uncontrolled pattern. If you have any thoughts or questions about this topic, or if you just disagree, please write to me at jeff at atccommunication.com or leave a comment at atccommunication.com directly under the show notes that support this edition of Radar Contact. You know, something just occurred to me. In less than five years, ATC is going to be phasing out radar as its primary source of data for managing air traffic. Well, the show is called Radar Contact, so I'm going to have to come up with a new name for this show. What will replace ATC's radar? Well, I'm sure you know the answer to that. It's ADS-B. Even though the FAA is aiming for incorporation of ADS-B by 2020, you can use ADS-B in your aircraft right now. If you've already plunked down a chunk of cash for ADS-B in for your aircraft, or you have an iPad app that displays ADS-B traffic, you're probably not seeing all of the traffic in your area using ADS-B in only. Now, why would I say that? Well, as I'm sure you know, ADS-B has multiple functions. Uh, To replace the FAA's current radar system, ADS-B is designed to broadcast your position, altitude, ground speed, and vertical speed. And that happens about once per second. And this is called ADSB out, and the data it transmits is available not only to the FAA's receivers, but also to anyone that's properly equipped to receive it. Now, the portion of ADSB that displays air traffic in an aircraft is called ADSB in. Right now, you need nothing more sophisticated in your aircraft than an iPad or even a similar computer tablet with an app that can display traffic targets interpreted by ADS-B-IN. However, and this is very important, I want you to realize if you're using ADS-B-IN only, in other words, you don't have ADS-B-OUT installed as well, you are only seeing a small percentage of traffic in your area on whatever you're using to display traffic data. Here's why. In addition to transmitting your altitude, position, ground speed, and vertical speed, ADS-B-OUT also transmits a separate data packet that indicates you have ADS-B out installed. Think of this as a ticket for a front row seat at the big show. No ticket from ADS-B out, and you're locked out from seeing any traffic relayed from ground-based stations. Well, if this is true, why do you get to see some traffic on your ads in display? Well, what you're seeing is other aircraft flying within 15 nautical miles of your position, plus or minus 3,500 feet of your altitude. The popular term for this distance and altitude envelope is called the puck, because its shape resembles a hockey puck. Other aircraft flying within your puck will share their ADS-B out signals with you via an air-to-air connection. And you don't need a special ticket to see this. They'll share the signal with you as long as they're flying within your puck. As a bonus, when you're flying within range of other ADS-B out-equipped aircraft, you'll get to see all the traffic they see. This is because their system transmits that ticket to ground-based stations, gets the full picture of air-to-air connections and ground-based relayed signals, and then shares that with you. You're essentially borrowing information from them when you're within range. Well, how did this happen? Why won't you get to see everything if you don't have ADS-B out? The FAA, in its infinite wisdom, thought it would encourage more pilots to install ADS-B out if they included this ticket feature which excludes pilots who don't have ADS-B out. So, what exactly is ADSB in only worth to you? Well, let's sum it up, and you can decide. When you're flying using ADSB in only, you can only see aircraft that have ADSB out installed, and that they're flying within your puck. You may get the additional benefit of seeing all traffic that any aircraft with a full ADSB in and out suite sees, as long as that fully equipped aircraft is flying within your puck. You're not going to see anything that's being relayed from the ground unless you're in contact with a fully equipped ADSB aircraft. So, ADSB is a help, but it's not a replacement for visually clearing for traffic. And that is especially true if you're using ADSB in only. If you believe it's giving you the full picture of traffic in your area, I beg you to reconsider. So, please. Keep those eyeballs outside and clear like your life depends on it, because frankly, it does. A while back, I asked followers of this show to tell me about headsets they use when flying and whether they liked what they used. The majority told me they really love Bose's A20 headset, and no wonder, Bose makes excellent audio products. At over $1,000 retail for the headset, the A20 had better be spectacular, which got me to thinking, I know most student pilots either don't have a lot of spare change to drop on a headset, and even if you do have that kind of cash laying around the house, maybe you don't want to spend a grand on your first headset. So I wondered, are there any good headsets for general aviation that won't break the bank? I've always been a big believer in the expression, you get what you pay for. And if you haven't heard that expression before, it means most high-quality products cost more than lower quality products. Yeah, I know there are many exceptions to that rule, even some rip-offs, but I generally have found paying more usually, usually, gets you better quality, especially where electronics are concerned. But maybe, when it comes to aviation headsets, maybe there's a good compromise between cost and quality. Maybe you can get a headset for under $500 or even under $400 dollars that still does a good job. Now, what do I mean when I say a headset does a good job? When judging whether a headset works for me, I look at several features. First and foremost, for me anyways, is the headset comfortable. I mean, I don't care how good the sound quality is if I can't wear the headset because it feels like a torture device. So for me, comfort comes in ahead of sound quality. Comfort is defined by a headset that does not squeeze my skull, that does not create painful pressure points around my ears, and that does not feel weighty on my head like I'm balancing a gallon of paint up there. Of course, after comfort, for me anyways, comes sound quality. Does the headset produce audio that makes it easy to understand ATC? If I have to strain to understand what an air traffic controller is saying because the audio sounds tinny or it's full of noise, this not only compromises communication, it may even distract me from controlling my aircraft. Next, I want a headset that effectively reduces cockpit noise so it does not compete with radio audio. How much noise reduction I need depends on the aircraft I'm flying. If I'm flying a corporate jet or an airliner, I don't need a headset with a ton of noise-canceling capability. If I'm flying a prop aircraft and the cockpit is not insulated, I'm going to need a lot of noise cancellation in my headset. In a pinch, if I have to, I can even wear foam earplugs and place the headset over these with the volume set a little higher than normal. Given a choice, though, I'd prefer to leave the earplugs in my pocket and let the headset do the work of eliminating noise. You probably know there are two ways a headset can eliminate competing noise, physically or electronically. If a headset uses physical noise elimination, also known as passive noise reduction, It probably has a heavily insulated ear cup. You know what I'm talking about, right? Think of headsets with hard plastic ear cups with heavy foam lining and thick padding around the edges of the cups. The other way to eliminate noise is to do it electronically. This is called active noise reduction. You'll see it abbreviated in advertising for headsets as ANR. Well, active noise reduction is quite a trick without getting into engineering details because, damn it, Jim, I'm a pilot, not an engineer. Active noise reduction creates mirroring sound waves. Boy, that's hard to say. Mirroring? Mirroring sound waves that counter the sound waves of noise. Yeah, (laughs) I know that's a woefully inadequate explanation, but really, who cares? What we care about is noise reduction headsets significantly reduce competing noises so you can hear ATC. They accomplish this feat without the need for heavy insulation, meaning most noise reduction headsets, at least the ones that do it electronically, are less bulky and heavy than headsets that use layers of insulation to kill noise. You can expect to pay more for this whiz-bang technology, and even though you'll pay more, some active noise reduction models don't do as good a job as headsets that reduce noise with thick insulation. The last thing I personally look for in a good headset is additional features such as the ability to rig up my music player to the headset. Separate volume control on a headset seems to be a big deal for some pilots. For me, having a separate volume knob on the headset is just another opportunity to screw up. I'd rather have a single source of volume control at the radio control head, but that's just me. I can see how if you fly with an intercom setup and several people are all tied to a common radio or intercom source... Some people are going to complain the volume is too low, and others are going to complain it's too loud. In that circumstance, having headsets with separate volume control is going to be a good thing. There are even some headsets that have separate volume knobs on each earpiece, so you may adjust the balance of the volume on each side to accommodate the hearing ability of each ear. There are probably other goodies some manufacturers included with their headsets, but in all cases, for me anyways, extra features take a back seat to comfort, clarity, and noise reduction. Of course, none of this matters if the headset doesn't hold together over time. Give me a rugged headset without a lot of bells and whistles and I'll be a lot happier than if I have a tricked out headset that falls apart after a few uses. The only way to know this for sure is to ask around. How well is a headset held up for other pilots? Is it a tough one or is it as fragile as glass? Is the audio cord sturdy, or does the wire insulation separate from the audio plugs after a few uses? Do the foam-filled rings around the ear cups hold up, or do they separate from the hard shell cups after repeated wear? Does the microphone boom hold whatever position you place it in, or is the hardware so weak that the boom constantly droops and the microphone falls away from your mouth as you fly? These are questions you may want answered before you commit the big bucks to a headset. So, having said all this, how do you know what's the best deal in headsets? I mean, how do you know what your money will get you? I think a measured approach is best. First, do your research. Look at not only what headset manufacturers claim, but also look at what other pilots are saying. When I read what other pilots say about their headset, I look at what they say about sound quality and durability. I tend to place less weight on what they say about comfort, even though that's important to me because each person has their own idea of what is comfortable. Certainly not all heads are the same shape and size, so what might be comfortable on one pilot's head might be a torture device on another pilot's head. Having said that, if I find the overwhelming majority say a headset feels like an egg crusher, it probably won't be comfortable for me either. I do pay very good attention to what others say about durability, If the majority, the majority say some part of a headset broke after a few uses, I'll be cautious about putting money into that headset. However, I know some people tend to be less careful about how they handle headsets than others. If only a few people indicate their headset broke after several uses, well, I'll chalk that up to either excessive rough handling or hopefully just a rare lemon in an otherwise good headset model. Next, And here's probably my most important recommendation, try a headset. If you can't borrow one from your buddy, then buy a headset from a manufacturer with an easy return policy. That way, if you discover a headset doesn't feel right on your head, or if the sound quality isn't what you'd hope for, you can return the headset without hassle and try something else. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with a lot of questions. Here they are in one very brief sentence. Which headset gives you the best comfort, audio quality, and noise reduction? I already know from talking to others, the best all-around headsets, the ones that deliver on everything as well as they possibly can, are going to set you back close to $1,000. Okay, well, for those just starting out in aviation and don't want to spend a lot of money, let's try this question. And this is the one I want to really focus on. Is it possible to spend less than $300 and still get a headset that is comfortable, has good audio quality, and reasonable noise reduction? Should we try to answer those questions? Well, I think we should. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to initially add these questions to the show notes at atccommunication.com. And by the way, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, do go to atccommunication.com, and you'll see the show notes either on the homepage or under the navigation tab, Radar contact show. In any case, use the headset questions in the show notes to give me and other pilots feedback about the headset you use. The questions I add will be asking only about headsets that cost under $300 this time. Later, we'll talk about headsets and other price categories, but this time I want to hear from you only if you use a headset that costs under $300. Got that? Three to six questions depending on your headset. Brand and model, cost, comfort level, and if uncomfortable, when does it become uncomfortable, and how is it uncomfortable? And sound quality, and finally, special features, if any. If I get good participation in the comments section under the show notes for this show, I'll add a permanent section to atccommunication.com that lets anyone add a review of headsets at any time. I'll also include price categories of 300 and above if response is good to the $300 and below category today. Let's see how it goes. And if you do participate, and I hope you do, thank you very much for being a leader and helping others make an intelligent choice in headset selection. get to your question of the week, some brief updates on what's been happening here at ATCCommunication.com. First, the next Radio Mastery book in the series is out and available. If you've been listening to this show or reading articles at ATCCommunication.com, you know I've been laboring away, and laboring is the correct term, at my next book, Radio Mastery for IFR Pilots. This is a book that took only six months to write, but it has taken over a year beyond to edit and finish the book. IFR flying is all about the details. Naturally, communication with ATC during IFR flight is equally detailed, and I wanted to make sure all of the details in this book were accurate, which is why it took so long. But even more importantly, I wanted to make sure they were easily digestible by pilots. To do this, I enlisted 12 pilots, including some certified flight instructors and seven air traffic controllers to help me interpret the language of ATC for pilots. I also put my 36 plus years of flying experience, God, I hate saying that, my 36 years of flying experience into this book. So you not only get all of the procedures and phraseology you need, you also get my tips and techniques for getting exactly what you want from ATC. Think of this book, Radio Mastery for IFR Pilots, as the accumulated knowledge of a whole lot of experienced pilots and air traffic controllers. After all, I think it's so much easier to understand and apply radio procedures when you understand what they accomplish and why they exist. Now, just saying that makes me cringe a little bit, and it sounds like a really dry topic making for a really boring book. I knew that would be a possibility going in, so I made the conscious decision to present material in real-world scenarios. This book follows a you-are-there format, In each chapter, you and I will go on a flight together to look at ATC operations and radio work in a particular chunk of airspace. We'll make flights into Class A, B, C, D, and even E airspace. I'll focus on areas I know pilots struggle with the most, such as copying pre-departure IFR clearances and copying and digesting complex taxi clearances, for example. Along the way, I throw in my idea of humor to keep you smiling and absorbed in the experience. I know I thoroughly enjoyed writing the book, and yeah, I know I said I labored over it, but that's because I was sweating the details, but I really, truly did enjoy writing the book, and I hope you'll see that tone and attitude in the writing. Right now, you can check out the print version of the book at Amazon.com, or if you'd really like the details inside, go to my website, ifrflightradio.com. That's ifrflightradio.com. There you can read a chapter-by-chapter breakdown of the book, as well as an excerpt from Chapter 3 and exercises from Chapter 2. That's right. You also get, oh, geez, that sounds like a TV commercial, but it's true. You're also going to get work-at-home exercises that will help you prep your radio skills for your next IFR flight. Again, check out details of Radio Mastery for IFR Pilots. That's the name of the book, Radio Mastery for IFR Pilots, at Amazon.com or at my other website, (music) ifrflightradio.com. And now, let's get to your question of the week. You are number one, holding short of runway six, the active runway at Petersburg Airport. Petersburg is an uncontrolled airfield. You plan to depart VFR, and your initial heading will be approximately 330 degrees. Here's your question. What would your next self-announced radio transmission beyond unicom and i'm looking for the specific words you would say and when would you make that transmission when you think you know the answer to that question go to atccommunication.com forward slash answers there you'll find a complete answer along with a complete explanation of how that answer was derived Music for this show is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com on a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. If you're flying this week, I hope you have a great time and beautiful weather. And if you happen to be flying into or out of an uncontrolled airport, be sure to actively listen to position reports and scan for traffic like your life depends on it. It just might. I'm Jeff Canerish for ATCCommunication.com and the new IFRFlightRadio.com saying, be well, keep in touch, and fly safe.